In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Take a dose of every day But how am I supposed to stay In a world built on empty ways And the lessons of all the rage Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Rob Snowy. This is Series 2, Episode 41. We're talking with Pat Ellers of The Fly Fishers. So you're going to want to write this down or go to the website now on your phone, whatever device you're listening on, theflyfishers.com. So please support Pat. He's got a great catalog, a huge website uh, full of all sorts of e-commerce plus the tying material, which you are going to hear about. So I've been a, a big fan of Pat's. I guess the first time I came across his patterns was his catalog, and I started seeing this Reaper fly, and it kept just my eyes kept going towards it. And eventually, I sat down and decided to tie it, and uh, it's pretty awesome. I want to say the you know the last uh, year and a half, two years of bass fishing, my largest fish have been caught on the Reaper. Terribly easy to tie, super effective. Mine is not the same as his it's my take on it but it's awesome and i keep missing pat at icast and i haven't been out to milwaukee ever 
So I decided to get Pat on the podcast, and we discuss how conventional fishing has influenced his fly tying design. So I made a list of questions I wanted to go over him, over with him. We went over about six patterns. I wanted to know his inspiration for the fly, the targeted species, non-targeted species or exotic species caught by him, his choice in vice thread bobbins, what hook he uses and why, the name derivations, how to fish the flies, why most of his flies have red eyes. I don't think we got to that. It might just be because they're the cheapest ones, like painting barns red. Apparently, that's why all barns used to be red back in the day, because red paint was the cheapest. Uh, The choice of materials, color and movement, and combinations of colors, the durability, synthetics versus naturals, what's new to the market, and how did these flies evolve to their current iteration? So sit back. We're going to have about an hour and three minutes, and then... um, We'll work on the next podcast. So the laptop broke. So the next podcast I will record, that's a non-interview, is probably going – it will probably be with the DAT. So stay tuned. And this is Pat Ellers of The Fly Fishers and some of the pretty awesome flies that he ties. Again, thanks for downloading. This is episode 41 of series two. I've been wanting to meet you in person, but it hasn't happened yet at the ICAST. And since I haven't been up to Milwaukee, I figure I'll get all my questions in now. There you go. And then get yourself up to Milwaukee and let's go fishing. Yeah, we were supposed to go up to, I think, Sand, no, Seal Lake. But I think there's a lot of lakes up there, so you probably don't know. Yeah, we've got over 15,000 lakes here in Wisconsin alone, so... And that's one I'm not familiar with, but that's not to say there's not one somewhere here. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So, um, yeah, well, basically, I want to kind of entertain some of the geeky fly tires like myself out there. All right. And I've caught more huge fish on the Reaper um, in the last two years than any other pattern. So, well, I appreciate some that. heavy focus on that. Yeah. All right. So, uh, let's get started. We have Pat. Am I pronouncing it Ellers? That's fine. Yep. Okay. How would you say it? Um, that's how everybody says it. That's actually how I say it. But the correct German pronunciation is Ehlers. Okay. All right. And you are in Milwaukee? I'm in Milwaukee, correct. Is that your native? Yep. Born and raised area? here. So. Okay. I hear about some place called Culver's. It's like <laughs> a burger place. Yeah, that's a local Wisconsin deal. I think they're branching out now to Arizona and that because we get so many snowbirds down to Phoenix. And uh, that was always going to be my money-making scheme was to get custard stands where all the Wisconsin and Minnesota people go for the winter, but I guess they beat me to it. Yeah. All right. So uh, tell us about your shop. You're located in Milwaukee. (laughs) Yep. Um, We are located about one block off the busiest freeway exchange in the state of Wisconsin. And... uh, I've been at that location for 17 years. In January, it'll be our 28th anniversary. So we're pushing on 30 years in the business, and uh, it's been going well. We're we're pretty happy with with what's going on with it, and we've got a catalog and uh, good e-commerce presence and uh, good walk-in business, and 
One of the cool things is Milwaukee is not the hotbed of fly fishing. And I remember when I first opened the place up and I had people saying, what are you thinking doing it here? And yeah, this isn't Bozeman. Um, it's not a, a big metropolitan center like New York or something um, where you're just drawn on millions of people. But Wisconsin has got so much fishing. If we had mountains, you'd have to beat people away with a stick because um, we've just got so many fishing opportunities up here. We've got uh, over 9,000 miles of trout streams in the state, um, over 15,000 lakes. Minnesota always talks about land to 10,000 lakes, and we've actually got over 15,000. Um, so, I mean, you add that in with that state, which is only a few hours away. We've got a lot of fishing opportunities. The Upper Peninsula as well um, that we're connected to on the northern border. But then we've got the coast of Lake Michigan that gets runs of anadromous fish that are going on right now and kind of aggravates me. But I had a guy in the store the other day again with wet waders on. I mean, some of these rivers are only 10 minutes from the shop and I get to clean up the carpet after the guys come in with the, the wet waders and that. But uh, salmon, steelhead, there are tons of big brown trout in the harbor right now. And uh, they're coming up the rivers as we speak. And it's a world-class fishery. It's just, it's a hard thing to time. And it's a hard thing to go after. I mean, trolling has always been the deal. But guys are starting uh, to figure out that they can catch them on conventional gear with swim baits and spoons and all that stuff by locating bait fish on their graph and then just casting out in the harbor and that. And we've been kind of messing around with that because there are shad in the lake, and they do chase those around as well as alewhite and smelt. And uh, once in a while, we'll get them crashing the shad and that. And the harbor's probably 30, 40 feet deep, so when they're down deep, it's hard with a fly rod. But when they're up top, my son that works with me, Jared's uh, been in the business with me since he's about 12, and he guided for five years up in Alaska, so he grew up with a fly rod in his hand, and he just... And last spring got a 21 pound brown out there oh my um, on a fly. So I, I still find it odd that brown trout in a harbor that just seems so out of place to me. Well, it's a it's a like that's a where the food sea is. run brown. So they live out there, <clears throat> and it's exactly right. It's like a steelhead, only it's a brown trout. Yeah. And the issue for our side of the lake is compared to Michigan. All our rivers are warm water rivers, like the Milwaukee River is a 100-mile-long river, and there's a couple of dams on it, so the fish can't get up that far, but it's a really, really nice smallmouth river all summer long, <clears throat> and uh, and then when the, the fish come out of the lake, they're running up there. We don't get the reproduction here that Michigan does because most of those streams are cold water streams to start with, mm -hmm. but the fact that it's you know, cool in the fall and then cold in the winter and the spring, we have the availability of runs. We're, we're dependent on planting fish in the state here. But that's not to say there was a 41-pound, 5-ounce brown trout caught in Michigan a few years back. and That's, that's bigger than my 4-year-old. That was the world record. And there was one caught the following summer half hour south of Milwaukee down to Racine out in the lake was 41.5. So it tied the world record. Now I think that record has been broken somewhere else. I don't know if it was the White River again down in Arkansas. But I mean, that's the potential we've got in this lake. And you can go down to the harbor right now and just stand there and watch these things rolling on the surface. 
and the water is crystal clear. It's almost like the Bahamas clear. Wow. And you can stand there and watch these fish swimming around. Now, it's not easy to catch them in those situations because the water is so clear. And they're notorious followers, especially on flies. But you can get them in a situations out in the lake with sinking lines and stuff that it's a tough fishery. But, I mean, to go out and catch one fish that's 10, 15, 20 pounds or maybe bigger, it's kind of a cool deal. You know, and you got yeah. a million and a half people five minutes away from you. So, and you never know if you're going to get a lake trout or a king salmon, coho, or a, a big rainbow. Uh, so, a million and a half, that doesn't sound like a whole lot for me. No, it's not. But, you know, it's That's our, all good for you. It's our biggest metropolitan area. And when you're yeah. fishing these rivers, you got shoulder to shoulder fishing. But, I mean, that's, and then you've got the, the Lake Superior Coast. That has a lot shorter rivers, but it does get some natural reproduction up there in places like the Brule River has a, a classic run of uh, steelhead up there as well as some of the salmon. So, I mean, this state has got it going on. And like I said, the fact we don't have mountains, you know, we don't get the excitement like uh, Montana might get, but we've got every freshwater game fish that swims. And uh, there's even a few stripers and a couple of the warm water impoundments that the power plants use that you can fish all winter long. They put them in there to keep the shad populations in check. What kind of shad do you have? You know, there's gizzard shad here. Ugh, um, they're nasty. And, and to be quite honest with you, I don't know what kind of shad we have because there's only a few fisheries that have them. The Mississippi River, that's another thing that's on our border to the west between us and Minnesota and Iowa, and that is just as good a bass fishery as you'll ever find from down in the south end all the way up into to Minnesota, and it could be the finest smallmouth river in the world when you get up into Minnesota, around Brainerd and all that. That's where the in fishermen people have their headquarters. And when you see those guys catching all those fish on TV in the rivers, they're fishing the Mississippi up there. But it's that typical, you know, it's a funny thing to read the bass magazines or watch the bass TV shows. Everything in their fishing relates to shad because so many of their impoundments, you know, their reservoirs built off of rivers and that. And we have very few shad in the state, but the Mississippi and the Wisconsin, which basically bisects the state right down the middle, until it turns to the west and then joins up with the Mississippi, eh, almost directly west of Milwaukee, um, does have shad populations in it. What species they are, I don't know. It's just I know when they're crashing, we start throwing shad patterns at them and stuff. So we've got some absolutely phenomenal fishing, and I would argue with anybody that we, and I say we, I mean, that includes the upper peninsula of michigan minnesota up in a little bit of ontario and even down in the illinois and iowa we've got the finest smallmouth fishing in the world here best musky fishing in the world because so many of our big rivers are big warm water smallmouth and musky factories the mississippi river and then all the lakes that we have and lake michigan itself is full of smallmouth and then schwamigan bay um, I did smallmouth schools up there with a friend with a, a shop. It's not really a fly shop, but for 17, 18 years, and I did a bunch of guiding up there. It's about a 40, 50,000 acre um, bay that's kind of cut off from the main body of the lake because Lake Superior is so nasty, but it's got its own subspecies of smallmouth up there. And it's harder to catch a 14 inch fish up there than it is an 18. So it's just, there's things that we've got here that, 
nobody in the world has. We had Bob Clauser as a good buddy, and he came out to fish with us, and we got weathered out on the big lake. And uh, so we took him to some of the inland water, and he looked at us and he said, my God, this is the best smallmouth fishing I've ever experienced. And he hadn't even been out in the bay yet. So when a guy like that is telling you what you've got, you know, you know it's true. Yeah. All right, so we've talked about how great it is there. Some more background. We'll come back to all that. Worst place you've ever fished? I don't know, because the trips that I do out of state and stuff, and pay pretty close attention to where I'm going. You know, and you can go on a saltwater trip and really, really have a tough time. I've done a lot of stuff down to Xtapa in Guatemala. I go down there with the expectations of landing nine to 10 sailfish on a fly myself. I mean, that's how many jumps we have. And uh, I've been down there already one time, you know, and you're talking it up, oh, this is going to be great. We had a group of six guys for three days and caught one fish in three days. And it was just like they're all looking at me going, really? This place is that good? But yet it is. So, And that's the nature of fishing. I can't really say that I've been to a bad and nasty place because chances are I wouldn't get into the water, get into a boat if I thought it was going to be. But, yeah, I guess we've all had some pretty crummy days and trips. It's just I kind of kind of forget about those one of my buddies said one day you know it's funny you don't talk about the women that you didn't get or go (laughs) out with or anything but we always talk about the fish that got away but we don't talk about the nasty places where we go fishing where it didn't work out so i think on the opposite end of the spectrum let's say a limousine was about to pull up to your house and say we're taking you anywhere in the world you want to go um, you know, I get a question like that quite frequently when I'm doing seminar on, seminars around different parts of the country. And, and it's often asked, you've got one day left to go fishing, where would you go? And I wouldn't leave the state. I'd probably be on one of our smallmouth rivers um, chasing smallmouth with poppers. But as far as a, a place to really go see that I haven't been, um, it would be one of two places, and it would either be the Seychelles or Mongolia, and I'd probably give the nod to Mongolia just because of the cultural aspects of the place. I just think it'd be cool to be fishing where Genghis Khan used to run around. Yeah. Not to mention it's a cool fishery. Absolutely. All right, so we we talked about some of the fish near you. How long have you been a contract tire with Rainies? Um, Boy, I'd have to look at my contract to see. It's... Hmm. I'm thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 12 years. Fantastic. Okay. But I'm just kind of guesstimating that the older I get, I guess the less I remember and want to remember. So (laughs) kind of like the bad fishing trips. I just, yeah. that stuff from the hard drive, but it's it's gotta be in the neighborhood of that. With all the unique patterns you've tied, what is one material, uh, one thing that every fly should have in it? In thinking about that, that's kind of a tough question because a lot of my fly tying is geared around conventional fishing gear, and it's it's not always going to be the same thing, and it depends on what I'm what I'm tying flies for because living in Wisconsin. You know, it's kind of funny. I've talked about this with reps and other fly shop owners. You go to Montana, 
what do you need in your shop? You need some four weights, some five weights, some six weights, some floating lines, maybe a sink tip or two, and match a bunch of hatches. But here, and we've got to have stuff for bluegills, for smallmouth, largemouth, trout, steelhead, salmon, um, pike, and muskies. So our inventory mix is a lot different. And I fish for all that stuff and then throw salt water in because we do so much saltwater stuff. Um, we run a number of trips every winter down to the warm places. I do a lot of that stuff. I've been fishing that tournament with uh, Will Flack down in Belize for the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust the last couple of years. So go down there in the summer. And saltwater is a big part of our business, and I, I've got a bunch of flies that way. So the, the material needs are really varied. I would say if you had a look at the most common thing that's in my stuff, it would probably be some form of silicone legs just for that that action and that noise and the vibration and stuff because there's saltwater bonefish and permit flies that use it and then a lot of bass flies like the reaper. and the Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The foamtail superworm. Um, you know, and you can even throw that into some of your streamers for trout and that. Um, so I guess that would be kind of the the most important material as far as some of my patterns go. But if you asked me if you could only have one material to tie a fly with, what would be the most important? I would probably lean towards one of two things, either bucktail or rabbit. Um, just the action of those two natural materials are pretty tough to, to replicate. And so much of our tying nowadays is, is going geared towards synthetics, which is really cool because we don't have to harvest it um, and wait for it to grow up and tan it and do all that stuff. I mean, everybody's seen what happened with the the chicken episode with the hackle shortage and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't just go manufacture that. There's at least a year or two before you start to see that stuff coming back because you got to grow the birds, process them, do all that. And the synthetics makes it really nice. But like with bucktail and rabbit, that stuff is pretty plentiful. It's easy to get at, and there's so many varieties from micro strips to standards to cross cuts to uh, magnums and the color combinations. I do a lot of stuff with the guys at Hairline and, you know, kind of a little behind the scenes stuff with them and talk to them about things. And boy, they have got so many different variations of rabbit that that stuff really is fun. And then here again, the bucktails, because you can make trout streamers out of that, bass flies. Um, big musky flies so those would be my two naturals but if you asked me when my stuff i guess it would kind of be some kind of silicone leg all right now speaking of hairline i guess you're, you're talking to marcos over Absolutely. there or? he's a very good right. friend of mine yeah if there's something is there something that's not available yet that you're like marcos man we, we really need this like you got to develop this for me <laughs> um not really and I'm not trying to be coy and, and hide anything from you. When I come up with an idea, I, you know, I just call him and say, what do you think? And he's got some guys like Greg Senyo and Pat Cohen that are 
putting out some really cool products through Hairline. And my problem with that stuff is, Rob, I don't have a lot of time for it. Um, the shop keeps me so busy and doing magazine writing and, you know, do some TV stuff occasionally and then we're hosting trips. So I'm constantly going in a few different directions. It's like right now we're working on the catalog for next year. There's a lot of time at night and stuff with that. And I don't get the time on flies that I used to. I mean, it's still a big part of what I do and I've got some new patterns that I'm working on right now. But I have a tendency to be taking new stuff and applying it to what I'm thinking about than going out and researching, hey, what could I use? Um, the Reapers, the Grim Reapers, the uh, the tail for that, that was something that I worked on with Marcos. And quite honestly, they didn't sell real well, um, and he kind of discontinued them, but Pat Dunlop up at Cascade Crest up in Oregon, he saw the need for that stuff and picked up on it. And that's a, that's a material, the Grim Reaper, it's kind of a unique shape. And there's a guy here that I don't know how many people would recognize the name. He's kind of a fixture in Wisconsin, but his name is Joe Booker. And he is just a musky fishing legend. And Joe is a really cool dude. He's got uh, a TV show that's been on for a long time where he fishes and he's also a big bow hunter. So in the fall, he's, he's filming those things. But Joe is quite an innovative guy, and he's got a product called a Reaper Tail. It's a plastic that goes on the end of jig-type stuff for bass fishing. And the the tail, <clears throat> the Reaper Tail, is made out of soft plastic, but it's got a kind of cool shape to it. And I always like that, and I like adapting that kind of stuff from the conventional world into my flies because it's just such effective, uh, effective gear. And so that's where the shape of that thing came up. And we put it into the, the Grim Reaper. And then the smaller version goes into the Bonefish Reaper. That was a pattern I developed on Andros Island that uh, really worked well. And it still does on big, big bonefish um, where you don't want the little ones coming up. You, you just want to get after the big boys, the 10 plus pounders. And I've got a new pattern coming out with Rainies this year called a Vampire Leech, which is an articulated rabbit. Uh, leech pattern that incorporates the reaper tail again. So that's something that's kind of somewhat unique to mine, but there's so many different uses for that. You can run that thing vertically. I like doing it horizontally to give me that up and down undulation, but you can do the swimming stuff with it. So that's another cool product. But as far as, yeah, there's really nothing right now. I've got some color schemes in mind that I've been talking to Marcos on, and I'm waiting for a few samples to come in and that to work on some different things. But uh, as far as I haven't struck anything yet to go, ooh, i got to get that going. But if it okay. happens, he's the guy I'm calling. All right. So let's get into the meat and potatoes then of fly tying. So we'll go with the Reaper then. Um, you've got the inspiration. So when you designed the Reaper, what did you want to catch? Um, definitely it's a bass fly. <clears throat> um, I've taken it down tarpon fishing and had some success with that on baby tarpon in the, the shad or the white color in different situations down in the Caribbean just to see if it would work. Um, you know, I'll be upfront about this. I do a bunch of stuff in the conventional world as far as some contracts, not with fishing gear so much, but um, I'm one of Rangers pros. I've been with Evan Rude for a number of years. 
Minn Kota, Humminbird. And what's cool about some of that is they're making the Evinrude Motors 20 minutes south of me. And right in that same community of Racine, Wisconsin, is Johnson Outdoors headquarters where Minn Kota and Humminbird come out of. So it's kind of home products for me. But I, I don't make any bones about it. I do fish past tournaments with conventional gear, and I enjoy that aspect of it. I just plain like fishing and all aspects of it. And what the conventional stuff does for me is it opens up my eyes to a whole nother world of baits in that. And the Grim Reaper, basically one of the most effective ways to fish with conventional gear, and it's happening right now. Fall, it's a great pattern, is like a jig and pig type situation. And I fish mine so slow, and then you just get that monster tug. Yep, exactly. And and so that's what was the inspiration for that was fishing that conventional stuff. And I'm going, I just need something that I can imitate this with with a fly rod. And, man, the crayfish color, our rivers are just overrun with crayfish. That's why the fish get so big. You know, it's just nothing but a protein factory for them. And so you take the root beer, the crayfish color, that's just an evergreen. That's money anywhere there's crayfish and largemouth or smallmouth bass. And then the shad pattern, here again, you can fish it like you're talking really slow. You can strip it like a streamer where there's shad. And what happens, like in the Mississippi, the Mississippi, they don't call it the muddy Mississippi for nothing. It's typically off color. And all those legs and that that reaper tail on there, it moves around and these fish hunt with those lateral lines and those low uh, visibility situations. And you just keep stripping that thing and changing your retrieves and those legs are pumping and that tail's going, it gives them something to key in on. And there's a rattle inside of there as well, which kind of imitates the, the carapace of a crayfish swimming, you know, black and purple, that's just standard bass colors. And uh, the fire tiger, that's another good one. We've got a lot of tannin water in the Midwest. And it could be crystal clear water, but it's got that cool Coca-Cola root beer color. And fire tiger is just a color that shows up really well in that stuff. So that's where I got those four food group colors um, of the Reapers. And that was the inspiration for it. And, you know, like the super worm, that's my imitation of fishing a vertical worm with a fly rod. So let's talk. So I've got the picture pulled up. You've got, it seems like you're a fan of red dumbbell eyes. Mm-hmm. And then what you, and then you decided to put the foam right under the tip of the zonker to keep it vertical, vertical. Yep. So do you bounce this on the, bo- the eyes on the bottom? Well, here, and have the tail stick up. Here's what the deal is with that, Rob. Um, you know, rote is a term that just means you memorize a poem or something by rote. You just keep doing the same thing, the same thing. And eventually you memorize, you do it as a kid in the second grade. That's how you learn Mary had a little lamb. And I see too many fly anglers, that that's how they fish. This is what I did last summer. This is what I did last spring. By God, I'm fishing today. And that's what I'm going to do today. And One of the reasons, like the tournament bass guys are so good, is they are so detail-oriented. And they're looking at every little different thing, and they're making changes according to water coming up or going down or the clarity of it. And so I just, you know, I looked at what's out there, what I'm using, typical streamer flies, what the bass guys were using, poppers, divers, all good stuff. 
But I looked at, all right, if I'm going to do a worm pattern, how do I do it? And you got to know the limitations of a fly rod. You know, I'm sure it's the same way out by you guys, but when it gets to be July here in Wisconsin and it's in the upper 80s and the 90s, the water is warm and these fish are down 15, 20 feet in the weed patches and the weed edges, it's a pretty poor way to fish them with a fly rod, even with a sinking line. It's a, it tends to be a, a quite a vertical presentation. So there's times when you don't have to fish in 15 feet of water that you can use those kind of flies and fish in five to eight feet of water. It takes some, you really got to be concentrating on what you're doing and watching for a little twitch or a pickup of it. But what I wanted to do was get something that was very weedless, like fishing a Texas rig worm. And I wanted something that I could crawl across the bottom or I could even swim it across or through the water column like a big leech or a bait fish. So if you look at the hook on there, that's a Gamakatsu G-Lock Texas rig hook, basically, an extra wide gap. And what that does, when you tie those lead eyes on it in that little 90-degree bend, if you tie a pair of lead eyes on that hook and set it on a table, that hook is going to be pointing up about 45 degrees. And that hook point is down. It's in line with the eye of the hook. So already you're not catching things with it. So then what I did was I put the rabbit strip on and I thread the, the strip through the eye or through the point of the hook. And then I took to get that vertical presentation, like maybe fishing on a shaky worm or a stand-up jig with plastic. And I, I glued that piece of foam on there so that that thing just kind of keeps that fly riding vertical. And I did a, a fly tying DVD on most of those bass patterns that I did. And we shot some really cool underwater photography. And you watch that thing just crawl over the rocks and the wood and all of that stuff. And it just doesn't snag up. Not that you can't, but it's it's about 95% snag proof without using a weed guard. Because weed guards on flies they're really not worth much. Um, they tend to get in the way of hooking the fish more than they do keeping you from getting snagged up with the mono eyes and that. And I've been working on some stuff trying to improve that. But um, this is the best way I've found so far. And you get that presentation a little bit too at the Grim Reaper because I'm using a 60-degree jig hook with the eyes down in there. But especially with that foam bringing that tail up. So that gives you that that nice finesse presentation. The problem with a fly rod and fishing bass is we can't make the noise that you can with uh, uh, spinner baits and all that kind of stuff or crank baits. We can't give off those big noisy vibrations that you can with conventional gear. So what I do with that stuff is I play to the strengths of fly fishing, and that's the finesse game. And so if there's a situation, like when the fish are really on, you can throw a diver make all kinds of noise and hopefully get them up on top, but they're not always going to feed on the surface. So then what I might do is I'll take and fish a sink tip line and I'll take a diver and I'll uh, goop it up with floating to make it want to float. And normally when you're fishing a sink tip, you only want to fish three, four feet of tip of material to keep that fly down deeper. But then what I do is I'll take a sink tip and a, say a eight to nine foot bass leader full length to keep that fly up off the bottom, goop it up with floating, throw it up, pop it off the surface a few times, strip it way down so it goes down three, four feet, 
let it swim back up to the top. So you're kind of getting the best of everything. You're making noise to make the fish find it. And then you're getting that finesse presentation like a wounded fish going back up. And a lot of times they take it when that thing's floating back to the surface. Or the other thing you can do is just kind of goop them up, get a good short sink tip, fish it like a crankbait. Take that diver and push some water and make some noise with it. And so that's the kind of stuff where we can make some noise. But the real game to me with fly fishing is the finesse game. That's where we can really shine and and make some hay catching fish with it. Mm-hmm. What thread are you using on these flies? Um, typically, I'm using Flymaster Plus on there. But now that there's some brand new stuff I don't know if you're aware of from Vivas. It's a power thread. It's a 140 and a 240 denier. And so it's even a little bit stronger than that without building up a ton of bulk. Because I, I just want to bind stuff down and glue it. I don't want it coming apart. You know, yeah. we're, we're not worrying about an atom sinking or anything. I, Last year at ICAST, Pat from Cascade gave me the Semperfly 12-aught silk. Mm-hmm. That stuff is insane. I, mean, I, I have maybe broken it twice. Really? Uh, it's incredibly strong. It's hard to cut with scissors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in, in the GSP type thread, when I'm spinning deer hair, then I'm using that stuff. And you can get away with that with like this new 240 power thread and even Danville Flymaster Plus. And one of the little tricks you want to use with that when you're spinning the deer hair is I always take and spin the bobbin to tighten up that weave. It strengthens up the thread a little bit, tightens it up, makes it a little bit more narrow so that the, the hair has a little bit more of a tendency to flare around the thread than if it's flat. Um, but I just find that those those bigger threads, that's fine for binding down rabbit strips and flashaboo and all that stuff that we're doing. All right. Hey, what's your vice of choice? Renzetti. Okay. The Renzettis are like family to me. I've got some tools that I designed for them, and uh, we've been very good friends for a long time. And uh, Andy has done, we, we've done some saltwater trips together. He's been up here a number of times at our open houses at the shop and every other year. And it's coming up this year, the first weekend in December, down at their shop in Titusville. Um, I go down there and do some presentations with them. And it's a really cool event. <clears throat> they do it to raise money for a couple of, of Lily Renzetti's different favorite charities. But uh, every other year we do it, and it's Lefty, Bob Clauser, Bob Popovics, John Cave, Flip Pallet's usually there, and uh, myself were the presenters. And it's kind of the Renzetti legacy tires or whatever. They've got a, a new thing going. And so for the last, uh, we've been doing that every other year for the last seven or eight years. And it's just a great event. And uh, I couldn't tie in anything else. What about bobbins? You got a preference for a bobbin? Yeah, I like using big stuff. Even when I'm tying trout flies, I use the Renzetti saltwater bobbins. I just, I'm a bigger guy. I'm 6'3". And. 200 and some pounds and um got big hands and i like i don't like using dainty little bobbins i'd rather have that big big bobbin in my hand and uh even if i'm using six out or eight out thread and then especially if i'm really reefing on big flies i like being able to pull on it and not have the bobbin bending or anything 
Okay, so how did you get the name for, I guess, Super Warm's kind of self-explanatory about the Reaper? Just get it from the musky lure? Well, yeah, tail? from the, the actual name of that plastic or the shape that we're imitating with it is Joe Booker's Reaper. And uh, so I just wanted to call attention to that tail on there because it's kind of a unique feature and it's a big part of how that swims. It's kind of like the old pork rind or uh, rage tail type things on a, a swim jig for the conventional world. And so Reaper and what goes with Reaper, Grim Reaper, I guess. Yeah. Now, are the eyes tied, so with the hooks inverted, are they tied like a clouser or are they on the other side? Because it's hard to tell what looks like epoxy around it when they're Yeah, I just, tied. I tuck them into that, on the inside of that 90 degree bend. Okay. Because it, it makes a nice base for that. And you just figure eight around that. It, it gives it a good solid base. So you don't have to worry so much about them twisting. And I found that's the best way to get that weight to help you make that fly run nose down to make it more weedless and to give it that rabbit strip vertical presentation. Okay. All right. Next up, I want to talk about your gator done. <laughs> yep. So the name for that, is that based on uh, Larry the Cable Guy? Yeah, because at the time, Larry the Cable Guy was the hottest thing going. And we've got a trip <laughs> we do every year up to Midnight Sun Trophy Pike Adventures. And Jared, my son that works with me, Jared guided up there for five years. And uh, I've been hosting trips up there for a long time. And it is the craziest pike fishing I've ever done, especially on a fly rod. And if you can imagine a 250-mile river system and only four anglers at a time up there, oh it tells goodness. you something about it. And it's a very unique place. And Greg Beefus, if you you know the name Brad Beefus, uh -huh. Greg is his older brother, and Greg owns the lodge up there. And uh, we had done some TV stuff up there, and it's just it's a phenomenal place. At one point, I think there's seven class record world records from two pound up to 16 i think there's seven of them and at one time five of those world records came out of that water that fishery that watershed up there and uh so i mean we've done a lot of stuff pat ford came up with us and we did a chapter in one of his books on that fishery up there and Pat's done a lot of fishing. He, he's been all over the world. He's a great guy, an absolutely incredible photographer. And we went up there, and it's a houseboat operation. And I remember one lake, it's a bit of a run. It's an hour and a half, two-hour run one way. And it can be pretty brutal up there late August. And we got up to this lake, and it's called Gator Lake because of the gigantic fish up there. And uh, we were up there, and I had tied these flies and got in there and i remember we were wade fishing it's kind of a soft bottom and pat wanted to get some pictures of that because a lot of times we're just fishing out of boats but there's places where we're able to get out and wade for them and in a three-hour period what the heck did we catch i'm trying to remember because it was just crazy we caught something like 15 16 fish between 42 and 48 inches all on flies and uh, the, the cool thing about it is it's such a shallow fishery that it just made for fly rods. And uh, most of us have all caught fish over 50 inches, which is kind of the holy grail for muskies, let alone pike. 
and uh, we've caught a number of them. We expect 50-inch fish to be caught every week that we're up there. It might only be one, but usually somebody gets one. And there's a lot of fish, especially in the fall, that are going to be in that 45 to 48, 49-inch range. And wow. uh, at the time, Larry the Cable Guy was the big deal, and we were in Gator Lake. And Greg, he's a funny guy, and he just kept yelling out, get her done because of Larry Cable Guy, and next thing you know, that new fly, because of the gator, got the moniker gator done. So that's where it comes one from. It, one of his favorite jokes, which is, it's awful, but he talks about his his neighbor's kid who's deaf with Tourette's, <laughs> and he just keeps flipping the bird at everybody. <laughs> like, that always makes me laugh. Larry the Cable Guy's wife is from Wisconsin. And he's got a home up on a lake up in northern Wisconsin, about four hours, four and a half hours north of here. And every summer, he has this fireworks show that's better than the little community that they're in. He just puts them out on a pontoon boat, and the whole community comes out to the lake to see what he's going to do. And apparently this year, they call the fire department because he had three pontoon boats. He really got out the wallet. And was going to put on a big show for everybody, and something happened, and they blew up one of the pontoon boats, and the whole oh, no. half-hour fireworks show went up in one big explosion. So, wow. So yeah, he's got a little bit of history here in Wisconsin. Well, he's definitely not Larry the the uh, pyrotechnic guy, then. <laughs> exactly. All right. So when I look at, at the Gator Don, there's two things I think of: meat and durability. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the, the really good uh, pike and muskie flies are rabbit strip design. And that's great, and they work really well. But I've seen expensive flies, and, you know, if people bought them, or you put a lot into the hook and the time and everything to tie those things, and one fish, and that tail gets clipped off by a tooth, and the fish, the fly is basically ineffective. So I went with stuff that, it was going to last a while. And the near hair is what I'm using um, for the tail on that. And now there's so many different synthetics that have come out. Renzetti Distribution, they've got a, a fly tying material uh, company now. And they've got a new product called Sculpting Fibers and Sculpting Flash Fibers that has flash incorporated into the sculpting stuff. And it's a lot like EP fibers. Um, the Puglacy stuff, that'd work to the, the sculpting fibers. Any of those things, near hair is good stuff because I don't want stuff that really tangles, so I don't want anything really soft because that can be a real nightmare, uh, especially with pike teeth and all the slime and everything. But I need something that the fish are going to eat and it's not going to be gone in a, a fly or two. And then there's bucktail on the front of that, which is just, you know, here, like I was saying in the beginning, bucktail is just one of those natural materials that I just love to use if I can. And then there's a couple of grizzly hackles along the side for a lateral line. I just think that's a good lateral line is a good natural representation. I mean, put some grizzly hackle on there. It, you look at the colors and you just go, well, there's chartreuse, there's red and white, um, blue and white. Yeah, that could be a good one. Black and, and orange. Some of those colors aren't real natural bait fish colors, but um, that lateral line gives it a little bit more of a natural look to it. So it's a pretty simple fly and then a bunch of flash in it. And what size hook 
And how big is this fly overall? Um, that fly is probably six or seven inches long. And what I'm using on that hook is the Gamakatsu spinnerbait hook. Here again, I kind of dipped into the, the conventional world for some of my hooks on it. And uh, you could tie those three, four, and five-aught. I think the uh, the commercial ones are on a four-aught hook. It's a big, beefy hook. But I'll tell you what, when people come up to that place to fish and we tell them what to bring and then they don't bring what we tell them, we're taking all of their equipment. Like we'll use snaps and swivels instead of turning, you know, tying the wire and cutting that stuff all the time like a tiger wire or a real power wire tippet so you don't get cut off. And it's a pain in the butt, even though you can tie nuts knots with it. It's kind of a pain to do it. Um, so we just tie on a big snap and you just snap the flies on because that's probably the least critical um, finesse fishing you'll ever do. But we take all their 30-pound stuff off and put 75 to 100-pound clips on there because these could be 35, 40-pound fish. And with that kind of stuff, that could be the fish of a lifetime for somebody I don't want to scrimp on a hook. I want a hook that's not going to fail me and break, or it's going to be big enough to handle a fish like that. Yeah, I was in Bass Pro Shops one day, and I was walking down. I just said out loud, my gosh, $75 for a swivel. And the guy goes, yeah, man, but if you're in a Marlin tournament, you're going to win $100,000. $75 ain't that much. Right. Well, we're not talking was, that kind of money for, yeah. for the pike stuff, at least. Right. But, you know, it could be a couple of bucks for uh, – for a good ball bearing or even just a snap you don't even need the the ball bearings on there um but just something that makes it a lot easier to facilitate changing flies and you don't want something that's going to give up on you and here's a little tip for you too you take those 100 pound snaps like the cross locks from berkeley they make a great zipper pull for when your fingers are cold for yeah steelhead fishing or cold weather trout fishing i do that on all my my cold weather jackets it's a lot easier to pull a zipper up with that yeah my sling pack has a, a split ring for like your keys mm-hmm. i just stick my finger in that and pull there you go yeah so uh you got access to a full shop what's your rod of choice for throwing these big flies knives machetes saws and shears multi-tools shovels swords axes spears hatchets and tomahawks if it cuts snips slices or chops midway usa has it Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Um, I want something, and I'm going to sound a little bit like a politician here because I want to keep all my companies happy. Um, but I keep... I want to use something that's performance oriented, you know, and that, that could be the Sage method, the Scott Meridian. That's the kind of stuff I like using because you're throwing big flies and you're throwing them a big distance. Then at one point I I had designed the edge 84 for echo. I've got a contract with uh, Tim Rajeff for rod design and the airflow bass line bass musky line or warm water line that line is a line i designed for them um that's my stuff you know and echo's got some great stuff like with the the echo three saltwater series and a 10 weight if i'm throwing big stuff i'm typically throwing tens and that's a great economical way to get some performance if you don't want to or don't have the funds 
to buy one of the high-end rods. But the Edge 84 was an 8-foot, 4-inch rod that everything eventually gets discontinued. Um, and that rod had been through the how many years cycle and eventually got changed because it was part of the Edge family that was getting changed. So, um, and I've still got a number of those, and I like to use that 10 weight. It's it's a little bit shorter rod, and the reason I went with that design was the little bit shorter rod is a more accurate casting rod, and it's an easier rod to fight fish and hook big fish on because your your fulcrum's a little bit it, it, your fulcrum doesn't change, but the lever length changes on a shorter rod, so it makes it a little bit easier with the big fish. And if you build enough beef into it, it still worked pretty well. And the eight foot four inch uh, length, if you could cast, you could still throw eighty foot casts with that thing. And so I'm still using those to this day. I switched over to uh, the Orvis, quote unquote, bass rod, the seven foot eleven eight weight, and it just just, it's it's awkward to throw at first, but it's just easier to work these flies and mm-hmm. tight corners. And I don't get a fish. Hopefully this weekend I'm going to get out. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, where you're at is going to stay warmer than where we're at. It's 75 degrees here today, and I was just out fishing on Monday, and uh, man, we had an incredible pike bite. I've got a 3,500 acre. It's pretty much a marsh. It's a shallow lake full of cattails and that. And it's full of bass and pike, and we went out looking for bass and still trying to get a topwater bite in October. And I'll tell you what, the pike were on, so we just quit chasing uh, bass and ended up catching pike all day on topwater stuff. It was a good time. That sounds awesome. Yep. How long does it take to develop some of these flies? Like, do you get an idea and draw pictures and then sit down and fish it, fish it again? (laughs) Back to the drawing board? Yeah, it's, you know, sometimes, and I would guess it's kind of like these guys that write songs. They wake up one morning, and in 20 minutes, they write the next smoke on the water or something. And then other times, you talk to the tortured artist, and it took him three months to write one song. Um, I think the way it works for me is I try to fill a need. I look at something, and I go, all right, here's the situation what would I do to catch the fish? And a lot of times I would say that from a conventional fishing point of view. All right, this is a situation where I'm going to need like the reaper, a jig and pig situation or a streamer bait fish deal to imitate shad. Um, so that gives me the first premise that I'm working on. Am I doing a streamer pattern? Am I doing a topwater pattern? And then it's kind of like, all right, what do I need to do to make this work? And it was like the long strip bonefish fly that I did. I was down in Andros. We used to go down there every year when the bonefish club was open down there. And way before anybody kind of discovered that west side, we would make trips over there. And I've caught fish up to 13, 14 pounds there. And then some new lodges opened up and more and more people got there and the fishery changed. But what we were finding back then was the big fish would eat especially if you got two or three of them together. But that was only if the little fish didn't beat them to it in the first place. And we just kept taking gotchas and making them bigger and bigger until I was throwing one-odd gotchas at these big fish. And we did a TV show down there with a good friend of mine, Rick Murphy, uh, on Sportsman's Adventures out of Florida. And uh, Rick came down and he said, what are we going to be throwing? And I said, one-odd gotchas. And he looked at me like I was nuts. 
And the first fish we caught for the camera was an 11-pound bonefish with a one-out gotcha. And he says, oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. He said, I would have never expected that to work. 11-pound bonefish. The big fish were not afraid of it. And we were even using 20-pound tippet down there. We didn't want to break them off. They weren't leader shy or anything. And it was deeper water. You know, some of these flats could be three, four feet deep where these big fish were cruising. Um and, and the other reason I did that was the little fish had a tendency to stay away from it. So now I know that a big hook is going to be the way to go. But I don't want to throw a one-on hook if I can help it. And uh, so I came up with that long strip using rabbit here again, one of my favorite patterns. And I put the eyes on it and kind of gave it a shrimp look to it. And I did it in tan and pink and put some sparkle on there and stuff and did it um, kind of reverse tie zonker type of deal where I ribbed it with wire in between the wraps of rabbit. And so it rode hook up so we wouldn't snag on the bottom. And boy, it was just, phew, it was a good deal. Um, I caught a lot of big fish on it, you know, and big, I'm still talking five pounds and up, not just double digit fish. And it worked really well. And I did one in tan and I did one in a light pink and it was kind of funny because the light pink, I'd never caught a fish on Andros on the pink color. But then you go to other places in the Bahamas with big fish or other destinations, and the pink works fine. And so that's kind of the roundabout way that I came up with that is I wanted something that's on a size 2 hook. So you're throwing a lot less steel, but I've got the length of that one odd gotcha in kind of a shrimpy pattern and that. So it was just kind of this evolution of I need some action, I need something that'll sink. But I don't want to throw a big gigantic fly, but I want a good length of uh, of fly on the thing, and it worked out pretty well. So that was kind of how I came up with that. And then what changed it even more was man, we got guys in Milwaukee they don't even know what a bonefish is, and these guys are walking in and buying those things because they're actually next to the steelhead flies in our bin. So they're thinking pink tan, it's a steelhead yeah. fly, and they come back, wow, that's one of the best steelhead flies I've ever I've ever used. And the same thing happened come bass fishing time. And, and what I realized with that, so I came up with an olive and an orange version and call it the long strip crayfish fly because I've got some rubber legs. That's the legs next fly it. on it. Yeah, it's got rabbit and rubber legs. Exactly. So. so all I did was I just kind of built on that long strip bonefish fly. Now I've got the colors for our natural crayfish up here. But then the other thing, a light clicked with me. And one of the things that people really miss with fish and bass or any place there's crayfish is crayfish go through a molting period. And, I mean, you know the deal. Most of these critters that we're fishing, whether it's on the saltwater flats or in rivers or that, they're kind of chameleon-like in their color. And crayfish, when they molt, they become a real light cream color. And until they grow a new exoskeleton and get a new shell and everything— these guys are just, it's like a beacon that says, come over and eat me. I can't fight you. You can swallow me and I'm soft. Come and eat me. So they just kind of hide until they grow that thing. And if they get exposed because of current or whatever, they got to move to eat or something, the fish just pound them. And so what I realized was happening, these guys were taking those light ones and catching all these bass on it because it was a perfect imitation for a molting crayfish. So actually that fly could go shrimp colored or it could go molting crayfish colored. And what's the, the body wrap made out of? It's just crystal chenille. Okay. Real simple. Just 
you know, a pearl color on there just to give it a little bit of flash. And on the, on the orange and the olive ones, I'm just taking the colors and matching up to the rabbit strip. And then you do the you split it so you get the two different claws. And I notice you have the, I might just be the angle this one was taken. What direction do you have the actual leather? Is it on the inside of the? Correct. It's on the inside of the hook. Just like that, that bonefish fly so that it rides hook up. So you're not, because, you know, all the smallmouth rivers for the most part are kind of rocky bottom. So it makes it a lot more weedless. And if you get into some brush or something, you can fish it through there a little more effectively. Okay. Now my next fly is probably one of the craziest looking things. Let, let me guess. The buzzard. Yes. And this only could come from a conventional background. <clears throat> Absolutely. And what that was all about was that marsh I was talking about. Um, it's 10 minutes from the house. And besides my bass boat, I've got a 17-foot jet-driven John boat that I use on the rivers. And that water is just too shallow for me to put the big bass boat in there. It just doesn't work. So I take the John boat in there and just get all over the place. It's like a miniature freshwater Everglades. There's little water channels and canals and potholes in the back that these fish all go through. And one of the things I'll do if I don't have a lot of time or I've got somebody that's not really a good angler and I want to see if the topwater bite is on, is I always carry a light, either a spinning rod or a bait casting rod, and put a buzz bait on because I can cover the water so fast. And if I see these things are eating on top, then I just rig up the fly rod with a diver or a popper or something and get the guy going. And the thing with a buzz bait is, you know, if people are aware of that, um, and a lot of fly anglers may not be, it's like a spinner bait, but you throw it out and you just crank on it and it spits and spins that blade on top and it's, it runs across the surface and throws water and makes noise. And it's just an absolutely phenomenal topwater conventional uh, pattern for, for catching largemouth and smallmouth for that matter. And so I'm looking at that thing and I'm going, how in the world can I do that? And I've got a very good friend of mine who's since moved down to North Carolina and Matt started messing with this and, what we came up with on this is kind of a soft body on a piece of wire with a propeller in the front to kind of spit water. But the thing about a buzz bait is, like I said in the beginning, there's pros and cons to conventional and fly fishing gear. And I always like to play to the strengths of what I can do with a fly rod, stack the odds as much in your favor. When you quit reeling on a buzz bait, it just sinks to the bottom. And it's pretty much ineffective till you start cranking on it again. So the good part about a buzz bait is it makes a lot of noise and you can really bring that thing in fast for aggressive fish. So what I did with the, the premise behind the buzzard is you throw it out there and you just strip that thing in and it sprays water with that little propeller like a buzz bait does. And it just comes across the surface and you see the wakes come up when the pike or a muskie want to eat it or the bass just clobber it. But the cool thing about the buzzard is that you can't do with the spinner bait or the buzz bait is I can stop it. And those silicone legs on that hook just kind of sit there and dangle like a popper might when the fish aren't real keyed in or real aggressive. And sometimes stopping it and just letting it sit there for 30 seconds or a minute 
we'll get the fish to come up and eat it. So I can do things with the buzzard that a conventional guy cannot do with a buzz bait. And so the premise of that thing was the buzzard, and that's where the name came from, buzz and then buzzard, just little yeah, playing words. So there's, I'm sure there's the purest out there. And you'll just say, fine, just, you're not just going to go catch a six-pound bass today. Absolutely. That, uh, you know, we get like, guys that come in, this isn't fly fishing. And I just said, all right, then don't catch any fish today. I'm going to use it and I'm going to catch fish. And, and I got past that stuff a long time ago. I mean, I had, and what's really cool is, you know, and, and some of this stuff business-wise, like with the tournament guys that, that I fish with, they would never walk into a fly shop, but I got these guys coming in now and they're buying flash of or crystal flash feathers and they're, they're tying it onto their tail end of their Rapalas or pop bars or any of that stuff. They're dressing up things and they come walking in. Well, we're a full length Sims dealer. And both my son and I were part of the, the test program with the pro dry suits. And you can't put a TV show on now without seeing Sims pro oh, dries yeah. on somebody. So it's a way for us to get new people and that would never grab a fly rod from coming in and buying all the cool clothing and stuff. But what it does is it opens these guys up to all this stuff. So I got this guy in there and he's looking at these flies and he says, man, this is really cool. He said, I can see where you're coming from with that. And Brian Schmidt from Umpqua has got some really cool new stuff with the Schmitter bait, which is basically a spinner huh? bait for, uh, for fly rod and then he's a got the huge Schmitter like bug concave no face that's on that that's thing. the schmitter bug that's the schmitter and bug that's like the old uh the old hula, like hula popper. popper yeah that thing is just incredible you got to fish it really slow and it just walks back and forth i've had absolutely explosive strikes on that um but then his schmitter bait has basically got an arm and a spinner blade and i had a guy come in and he was just an old school dry fly only trout fishing guy and he looked at me and he said you know, if that's the kind of fly shop this is, I don't think I ever want to come back here. Ooh. And I just looked at him and I said, oh, it's up to you. I, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to make any apologies for being a fisherman and wanting to figure out new ways to do it. And, you know, you're never going to have everybody agreeing with you or everybody disagreeing with you for that matter. And so you win some and you lose some. I'm just out to have fun and catch a bunch of fish. And as long as it's ethical and I'm not breaking any laws, I don't see any problem with it. Absolutely. So any other, uh, patterns or materials you want to talk about? Um, I'm just trying to go through my deal right now. Cause we got a bunch of new stuff in. Yeah. What, what do you want people to go to? The, I'll tell, I'll do an intro. So everyone's already heard it by now and I'll give out the website and everything, but, um, there's some yeah. Tell people what they should be ordering. You know, if, if it's if we're talking warm water materials, and that's where the real growth is, because trout stuff, you know, it amazes me that so many tires can reinvent the wheel with trout nymphs. That's three quarters of an inch long, olive brown. Yeah, and I look at that stuff and I just go, "Wow, why didn't I think of that? That was something I should have thought of." You know, just. It's so cool, the copper wire patterns. A lot of that started, started with John Barr's Copper John. Um, and now you look at some of these cool patterns that are coming out, and you just go, man, what are they going to think of next? I guess my forte and stuff is going to be the salt water and the warm water stuff, and that's kind of the reason that that Rainey's hired me was for, for what I do with that stuff. 
but I don't want people to think that I'm not a trout guy. Um, I love trout fishing and I've got some patterns that, that I'm giving to them that hopefully they're going to pick up along the lines of trout fishing. I know some of these nymphs are things that I've never seen before. Um, so maybe I'll have some of that with them. My big problem is I had my knee replaced and, uh, before I was in this thing, when I was younger, I raced motorcycles and snowmobiles professionally for about six years and it kind of caught up with me and I just literally could not go trout fishing. I couldn't wait a stream. I'm just getting back to the point where, you know, I'm back in good shape again with that and, uh, just learning what, what I can do. And I'm probably my ego going to check my male ego and carry a waiting staff with me. Um, but I'm finally being able to get out and trout fish again after the year, year and a half of having that knee replacement. I didn't have a lot of confidence in it. So now, well, you know, I'm working on some new trout stuff in that too. But my big deal is the warm water stuff. And if you go to those materials, um, there's some really cool stuff out there that people are just glossing over. And some of the products from Hedron, everybody thinks of them as flashaboo, crystal flash. But, you know, take a look at the Microlon. That's another material that could be inserted into that Gator done. Great stuff with that. Um, the brushes that Enrico Puglesi puts out that really makes cranking out some big flies easy and fun. There's some good stuff there. So many new synthetics. And we've got a on our website, we've got, if you go to the fly tying materials, there's an actual new tying materials category there. You just click on that and see all the new stuff we've gotten in in the last month or so. Um, and I'm just trying to think of all the things we've been putting out on the wall. Um, we've got a good supply now of the foam diver heads, which makes that a lot easier. We've got, well, Pat Dunlop at Cascade Crest has really kind of grabbed the bull by the horns and he's manufacturing them because there was a shortage and now we've got a good supply of that kind of stuff again. And there's just so many synthetics. You just scroll through our synthetics material page and look at this stuff and the sky is the limit. I, I walk in there and we've got so many materials in there. One of our reps that covers both sides of Lake Michigan, he does about nine States and he came in the other day and he said, my God, he said, you know, he said, you got more materials in here than any shop in my nine-state territory. Wow. And uh, I look at that, and there's the hairline people and the Cascade Crest people and all this stuff that they keep working on and coming out with. There's just a lot of neat stuff that can be used for so many different flies. Yeah, I keep flipping through the hairline catalog, and every day I catch something else with my eye and say, oh, I didn't notice that the day before. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a dangerous catalog it is and they just they keep blowing me away with all the cool stuff that they come up with and bob and marcos and all those guys out there darren i mean they're just fly tying material geniuses yeah so anything else you want to uh mention the one thing we didn't get back to was the worst fishing yeah uh, we finish off with that um i mean as far as just being a letdown you know, it was that day in Guatemala, one fish in three days with six anglers and two boats. That was kind of a, That'll do a it. big disappointment. I think you just got to have certain expectations. And I guess as long as I'm having fun, if the fishing isn't too good, I will tell you the, here, here's a good one for you. Okay. I've got this for you. The worst fishing trip I ever had was 
something that was one of the coolest things that produced one of the coolest things I've ever done. And I was down at the Andros Island Bonefish Club early fall. And there was a hurricane down south. It was tracking. There shouldn't be any problem. So three, four of us fly down there and uh, we're down there fishing. And by the time we got down there, this hurricane changes direction and it's headed right for the island. And so now we're kind of in desperation mode. Andros and Andros took a direct hit. Thankfully, it wasn't a super hurricane or anything, but we had to get out of there. And so Rupert, who owned the lodge, is a dear friend of mine, and uh, his younger brother Dennis was one of the guides. Rupert's on the phone trying to get us a, a quick charter flight to get us back to Nassau and get us out, or we're going to spend the week there just dodging the storm. So while he's making the phone calls, Dennis runs up to me and he says, I got a place up the creek. You could see this wall coming. It was so ominous. The wind was blowing somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 miles an hour already. And I mean, we literally had an hour to two hours to get out of there. We were going to be stuck. And he grabbed a fly rod and he said, come on with me. I said, well, what are you talking about? He says, we're going to go catch a bonefish in a hurricane. So we went flying up Cargill Creek, and he had a little place where there's always a couple of, of fish swimming around in there. And by God, I caught about a 16, 17-inch bonefish, put it in a boat, got a quick picture, and got the heck out of there. <laughs> headed back. By the time I got back, Rupert had the taxi waiting for us. We headed to the airport. And I mean, if we had waited another 45 minutes, we'd have taken a direct hit from that thing. Nice. So, so the worst trip turned into one of the coolest experiences, although I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. So that that would probably be it. All right. Well, we'll use that as the icing on the cake. And uh, Pat, thanks for joining me. Finally got to speak with you. And hopefully we'll see each other in person soon. Absolutely. Drop some cash in your store. So, Pat, Pat, thanks again for uh, joining us this evening. No problem, Rob. I appreciate you thinking of me and inviting me on. I'd, I'd be happy to do it again at some point in the future. All right. it, was a, it was a good time, and I really appreciate it. Super. All right. Well, Jason, that's it for us. Uh, play the exit music. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western a mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish this is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here from the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters enjoy the best fishing panama city beach has to offer during chasing the sun sundays at 9 30 a.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment 
Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.